it just got to be too much. Citizens from all walks of life turned out by the thousands to protest government policies that they felt went just too far. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, we'll meet a young Turk who explains what it's been like to join the demonstrations in Istanbul and how it's helped to unite all kinds of Turkish citizens. There were very, very secular people, diverse socialist Muslims, LGBT groups, gays, lesbians, you know, nationalistic Turks, nationalistic Kurds, all came together for a purpose. While in Germany, a new coalition government is forcing political rivals to work together. So what does the average German think about their money going to prop up the weaker economies of their neighbors to the south? It's not just like we Germans think, oh, those southerners down there, they don't work too hard. But we do know that it's about who actually gets the money. Stay with us for a personal look behind what's making news in Germany and Turkey, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. In a city of 14 million people, there's not a lot of green space for everyone to enjoy on a fine spring day. That appears to be what ignited the protest in Istanbul in May of 2013. Government plans to turn Gezi Park into a shopping mall. It's estimated that well over 3 million Turks have taken to the streets at one time or another last year in thousands of demonstrations. And the more the national government has tried to suppress the protests, the more people join in. In just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear why one young woman took to the streets of her city and how Turks of all stripes are keeping their democratic expectations high and on the front burner. Beyond Turkey, a lot of European politics seem to revolve around issues that get bundled up as the economic crisis. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves by checking in with Berlin-based journalist Holger Zimmer and German historian Fabian Ruger. They'll help us find out what their fellow Germans are talking about since Angela Merkel's party formed an unusual coalition government with its rivals last December. Gentlemen, what am I likely to hear people talking about after work in the bars of Germany these days? Holger? I think basically maybe Fabian might agree in that people talk about the Große Koalition, the GroKo, which is like our new government, which is formed by Grand Social Democrats' Grand Coalition of basically the two major parties in Germany, SPD, Social Democrats, now with CDU, Christian Democrats formed this coalition under, again, under Angela Merkel. The GroKo? GroKo, Große Koalition. So the Grand Grand Coalition. Coalition. And Fabian, Americans, we have, you know, our our Congress, and it's uh, usually just one party or the other is going to dominate because we just have two parties. But in most of Europe, you have no single party has the majority. So no party can rule without getting along with another party and collecting a coalition to have a majority. Explain that in a nutshell to our our listeners who might be going to Germany. Well, essentially, the voting system favors a number of parties and not just two. Several parties get elected into parliament, and that means if you want to get a majority in parliament to form the government, you have to get two or three different parties in parliament together to form a coalition. That's what has been the case in post-war Germany pretty much since 1961. Now, it's just this sort of a mechanism where, depending on the mood of the electorate, you got your leftists that want to rule as left as possible, but they got to compromise just enough to get a majority? Or do you have odd bedfellows where you've got right-wingers and left-wingers actually making a government together? The system forces almost compromise. And that, you know, it has its upsides and it has uh-huh. its downsides. And uh, right now, the election result was very strange because the Conservative Party of Angela Merkel, who is the Chancellor, was very good, but not good enough to form the government all by herself. So she had to find a coalition partner, And the only partner that was ready to coalesce with her, really, was the Labour Party, who was really running directly against her. So, but they um, would be farther to the left of her normally. Oh yes, they are you right. know, the more liberal. Of so the two they parties. would have to compromise substantially in order to get part of the voice of government. Both of them do. But the absurd situation now is that basically more than a two-thirds majority are now basically part of government. So we don't really have a like opposition anymore, oh. as it would be like before. So you've got a super coalition that can really yes. run the show. They could, but also like they probably have to compromise a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think people are. I know yeah. many people of my friends are not too happy with this. In the polls, this is very unpopular. Everybody knows that this is sort of the emergency solution because no other government formation is currently so viable. So everybody is compromising too much right. in the in the electorate size, because that's the opposite of the United States. Is we don't have any compromise at all. 
Right. So we're not doing anything. And you guys have everybody getting along and compromising right. and all the ideologues are, are going home sad. And I think most political pundits agree that this will probably not last very long. Both sides will want to get out of that coalition. <laughs> Basically, very, every, every day there's news about like internal rifts, you know, so it's not going to going very well there. Now, you know, from the United States, the European Union is fascinating and the crisis that you guys are struggling with, like our crisis and so on. And Germany is like the success story. And you guys just kind of work hard, produce a lot and bail out everybody else. Uh, I don't know if that's too simplistic, but how do you Germans see it? Because you're spending billions of dollars subsidizing people who are corrupt and lazy south of your border so they can keep buying your stuff. I think that's actually really complicated. If you look at who gets the money that people are being bailed out with, it's not the people of, say, Greece who get that money. It's the banks who get that money. And the banks who get that money are incidentally not Greek banks. They're mostly German and French and American banks. So you're bailing so out we're bailing by out, giving money to the banks exactly, that Greece but, money to. And Greece will owe that money. And, oh. and that's sort of a bad deal if you think about it. Fabian is completely right in saying it's not just like we Germans think, oh, those southerners down there, they don't work too hard. But we do know that it's about who actually gets the money from there. So we should not get into this. Uh, you know, exactly. argument, you know, about all oh, the good Germans. So there's or financial actually, roots to the problem, big financial is, institutions. Yeah. The question will remain, and I think Europeans will discuss this for quite a while, how to make a euro work for everybody and mm -hmm. not just for the area that is the most productive in terms of industry. What people are talking about in Germany these days? That's what we're talking about right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Fabian Ruger and Holger Zimmer. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sally's on the line in Ashland, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Last summer, I was in the Westerwald of Germany in the little village where my ancestors come from, and there was discussion among several people I heard about how their tax money was pretty much just funding the infrastructure of the eastern part of Germany mm -hmm. while there was nothing, they said, for their area. And, and that surprised me. And they said that Bavaria was fine because they're such a rich area, but that in this area of the Westerwald and surrounding areas, it was becoming downtrodden. And then when I was leaving the village to head on what was to be a three-hour trip to uh, Marburg, shortly into the train journey, the train stopped there was nothing said, and some people got off the train, and apparently we sat there on the tracks for about a half hour, and then the train decided to return because a cable had fallen across the track up ahead, and it took them a while to figure out whether they could get it repaired or not. And long story short, uh, what was to be a three-hour trip took six hours, and what was to be four trains took seven trains. And I thought, wow, this is not something I really anticipated. In Germany, I know things happen and there's always the unexpected. But I began to wonder whether that was part of what they were discussing. Well, Sally, thanks for, for that comment. Um, I think there's two things here. For one, I'm really happy that that happened to you because maybe it might shatter the cliched view that we have that everything is perfect in Germany. It's not. You know, <laughs> I've been taking many trains <laughs> and things right. can happen. So I think what you experienced does not really have anything to do with things being not maintained anymore, really. That's not the point. But the discussion is, it's a good point here. We have a long discussion about it. Right after unification, basically, Germany introduced sort of a special tax. Uh, they don't call it tax. They call it a Solidaritätsbeitrag, uh, basically solidarity. So it means... Uh, people in the West should pay. Actually, everyone pays that, not just people in the West. But let's pay a little bit, I don't know how many percent it is, to actually develop uh, what was former Eastern Germany, which was infrastructurally pretty much poor, pretty run down in many, many ways, you know, roads and waterways and buildings. So we still do pay that. And there's a discussion about it. And I do know the feeling that a lot of people in the West say, why pay this? Because my city is falling apart as well. I mean, that is a discussion that is still going on, but I do think it was really worth it. It was good to do this because East Germany was way behind. But well, when, when Germany was united, suddenly you've got 30% more territory and 30% more population, but you've got these poor cousins that suddenly are in your family, mm -hmm. and the mass of the wealthy German society decided we've got to subsidize got this to support them, yeah. and, and build it up. Today, is the infrastructure essentially the same on both sides? Are it's still behind in East Germany? 
In fact, it depends on the exact area you're looking at. But some areas in East Germany are now much, much better off than some of the areas in West Germany. That in still, fact, that's what the people yeah. were saying was that East Germany was in way better shape than West Germany now. It depends on the area, of course, you're looking at in detail. But it's true that uh, East Germany is basically now at the end of the catching up process yeah. to West Germany. It's quite remarkable what Germany has done in the last generation. Sally, thanks for your uh, comment and your insight there. And just one quick question. I was wondering, is there an end? Is it going to continue that everyone is continually subsidizing East Germany, or Uh, was that in a certain time frame? Every couple of months, that discussion is beginning in politics, and you know how this works. Like It will come up more and Mm. more often, and eventually there'll be... There'll be a vote for that, and they'll stop the Boy, subsidies. It was a long parts. road to go. It was a long road and to I'm get there. I'm sure that someday they'll stop, yeah. but there's still place to go. I see. Thank you so much. Thanks again, sure. Sally. Man, we could talk all day about German taxation and economy and all this sort of thing and incorporating Eastern Germany into the rest of Germany, but let's finish uh, Fabian and Holger just talking about something popular or something musical or cultural. Uh, both of you, if you could just finish with uh, some ideas on what's on people's minds in Germany. What I really find fascinating is in the big cities like Berlin, like Frankfurt, There's a new generation of musicians, of people making music, and they actually are maybe second, third generation immigrants to Germany now, because we also have our immigrant community, a lot of Turkish people Mm -hmm. in Berlin, for example. There's one popular band now, uh, two actually, that Fabian knows. One is Seed from Berlin, and the other one is Kaccha Candela, and they do some kind of dance, uh, kind of hip-hop sort of mix. But what I find very interesting about them is These young people, they speak in German. They have a song that is German, mixing German, Spanish, and maybe English together. So it is like young people, this mix, it reflects of like the state of this immigrant society that we are. It flows in both directions. I mean, I have two artists I love to listen to from Germany. And if you listen to them, you wouldn't necessarily think their music is actually German. Um, There is Peter Fox, who is the main, he's a lead singer of of that band, Seed. uh, And he has had a very successful album, which is basically German hip hop. But some of the music section is actually by American musicians that he brought over because he wanted them to play some of the music for his album. It's a fantastic album. Great lyrics. Stadtaffe. Stadtaffe, yeah. Uh, City Ape. City City Ape Ape or City Monkey. And if you don't like hip-hop, there's a wonderful artist also from Berlin. Her name is Laura Lopez Castro. And as you can tell by the name, she's actually a second-generation Spanish immigrant to uh, Germany. And uh, with a friend of hers, they recorded an album of South American-style bossa nova music. Right in Berlin. uh, Right in In Berlin. Berlin. Embraced as as pop now in Germany. Mm -hmm. Something to talk about next time you go to Germany. That's right. (laughs) Fabian Ruger and Holger Zimmer, thanks so much for giving us a little insight into what Germans are talking about this year. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, There's been a lot to talk about in Turkey in the past year. People of all political stripes have been joining together to demonstrate in the streets of Istanbul and all across the country. They've been protesting a series of authoritarian policies from the ruling party. In just a moment, we'll meet one young Turk who describes what turned her into an activist and why she views this as a positive force for democracy in Turkey. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. It started last May, but it isn't over yet. The protests that garnered international attention in Turkey have generated a new citizens' movement. Even if the news doesn't always make it to the United States, protesters are still turning up, 
to respond to whatever the latest controversial policy is that the ruling Erdogan government wants to implement. Istanbul-based tour guide Yarin Turgulu joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for an insight on what becoming a political activist means in Turkey. Actually, before the protests, I wasn't an activist, but after the protests, I became a professional activist, actually. Wow. First of all, we all went there to defend one of the last green spaces in downtown Istanbul. But of course, it was much more than the park. We all say that it started with a tree, but, you know, it has its deep uh, roots down below. Now, this is interesting. So the demonstrations originally were just people were angry with the government for a building over a park or something like this, right? The possibility of building a shopping mall in one of the last green spaces in Istanbul was, I think, the last drop. The last straw. Definitely, yeah. But uh, what is the bigger picture? What are people angry about? The bigger picture is, I think, uh, it was against the increasingly paternalistic tendencies of the government and the prime minister, you know. Paternalistic, what do you mean by that? You know, uh, like having a father trying to dictate you, uh, oh, his so point sort of, of view, his you. beliefs, his way of you. life. You know, I'm a mother of a six-year-old. Even I cannot dictate my beliefs to my son. So you cannot dictate your beliefs, your way of life to a nation, you know, to so, individuals. No. I think that was maybe mainly the reason of the Gezi protests. So people were just fed up with a uh, government that had an agenda of cutting back on people's individuality and freedom? That's what I think. That's my personal thought. And that's mm-hmm. what many people thought because about Turkey it. Because Turkey prides itself in being secular and pluralistic. And of course, yes, most Turks are Muslims, but the government is supposed to be a, a secular government. Is definitely, that right? definitely. Most Turks are Muslims, but most Turks are also secular Muslims. Yes, they are Muslims, but... But, you know, they're also secular people. They believe in the separation of the state and the religion. Separation of mosque and state. We would say separation of church and state. And you actually have separation of mosque and state. Definitely, we have. I have a very uh, personal interest in this. I'm very impressed by what Ataturk gave to Turkey, because you guys were in the Middle Ages, really, until after World War I. Definitely, definitely. And then Ataturk comes along, and, and he's got this idea about a modern, secular, pluralistic society. And fundamental to that is being secular. And you can be very enthusiastic about your religion, but the government should be secular. And my understanding is the military is actually obligated to overthrow the government if it ever becomes a theocracy. Yes. But but recently, I think your president has sort of taken off the leaders of the Turkish military so he can motor Turkey into a more theocratic society. Yes. Is that actually happening? Actually, I do believe that the next decade will be better in Turkey in terms of democracy. I do believe that the Gezi Park protests were a turning point wow. now that's in quite our impressive. history because, you know, people lost their... Patience. They, was, they were going to be fed up with this government. Definitely. And people actually lost their sense of fear. The Gezi Park protests turned ordinary citizens into, like me, you know, people an like activist. You. People like you, you know, who've never been marching before. I was always now... angry, you know, about them. I was always angry with different kinds of things. But that was the first time that, you know, I just grabbed a lemon to protect me from the tear gas. And I just grabbed the simple gas mask and I just took a taxi to the park. You, you grabbed know. a lemon in anticipation <laughs> of tear gas? Tell me about of that. Of course. You know, we, we lost our sense of fear, actually, because when we were there, you know, especially in the Istiklal Street or around the street, there are little alleys, you know, where police traps you, you know, and then they tear gas you for hours and hours. And there's always a way to just run back down to the sea and maybe catch a taxi back home. But you don't do it because you don't want to do it, actually. So you didn't want to miss out on the action? Of course. It's like betrayal. You, you don't know, seem betrayal like a, to you, your... You don't seem like a radical person. You no, seem... I'm not a radical. <laughs> the thing is, the people who joined the protests were not radicals. Yes, there right. were a few radical groups mm-hmm. because it was a very big protest. But the nice thing about the protest, I think the nicest thing is it brought many different people from different backgrounds together. There were very, very secular people. There were socialist Muslims, LGBT groups, gays, lesbians, you know, nationalistic Turks, nationalistic Kurds, all together, you know, came together for a purpose. So it was uh, really very important. That's why I think... empowering, I think. Definitely, because, you know, there was always a kind of a polarization in the country. But the Gezi protests showed us that we can come together for a cause. And until 2013, maybe people like you were less confident about raising your voice to defend definitely, your, your, definitely, your modern government. Definitely. And also wow, it brought the sense of humor. It was so funny when the prime minister 
called the protesters, the looters, the Turkish word for the looter is çapulcu. And then we created an English word for it called çapulers or çapuling actually. And the prime minister, his name is Erdogan? Erdogan, yes. Erdogan. He tried to insult and uh, Ridicalize, demor- rid- you know. ridicule the demonstrators and call them simply looting, looters. Looters, definitely. And then you, it's called çapulcu in Turkish. And you turned it around to be what? Today it means the person who fights for his rights. And the English word we created is çapuling. And there's even a song, every day I'm çapuling, you know. So you're fighting <laughs> so for the rights of the Turkish people. Definitely, definitely, you know. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and as we do every week for an hour, we're talking with people from different lands to find out what's important to them and what we can learn from them. And today we're joined by Yaren Turkulu. Yaren is a new activist, and uh, she's never been politically active, but the recent demonstrations in Istanbul have emboldened her, along with millions of Turks, to stand up for their modern, secular, pluralistic state. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Nancy in Portland, Oregon has emailed us, and Nancy writes, My dream is to visit Turkey and to travel around the country. However, I have concerns about the safety of traveling in Turkey at this tumultuous time. What's your opinion? That's a very good question, Yarn. A lot of people in the United States are nervous about going to Turkey. Definitely. Uh, I have to say that even during the protests in June, I guided many tours for Americans. Uh, of course, when you find yourself in the middle of the protest, it can be a bit difficult. But generally, you know, Turkey is a very safe country. And then even during the protests in many cities, it was the highest season for tourism in Turkey and it was pretty safe. So you said pretty safe. What do you mean it's by pretty safe? Pretty safe? It, it's safe, actually. It's safe. My feeling is they would advertise the demonstrations, and if you want to be in the middle of the action, you can do that, and then it's <laughs> actually, not perfectly safe. But if you want to avoid the demonstrations, of course, you could do that. There was nothing in Sultan Ahmed, you know, where all the highlights are located. You so know. what would you say to a tourist that was dreaming of going to Istanbul and then they did not go because of the demonstrations? I think it's a very uh, wrong decision, you know. Because I think this, these are the perfect times to see Istanbul, actually, the most exciting times. This is reality. This, this is, is reality, definitely. Jane's on the line in New Orleans, in Louisiana. Jane, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Yarn, very much for helping us in the United States to better understand what is really going on in Turkey. I would be very grateful to you, Yarn, for sharing your understanding of how Turkish women are participating in these democratic demonstrations. Are women in Turkey accepted as participants and even sometimes as leaders in this democratic protest movement? It's a very nice question, actually. More than half of the protesters in the Gezi Park protests were women. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you looked, ah. you saw women. And there were also women, you know, secular women who were just like dressed like me, or there were also women with headscarves joining to protests, and there were many of them. And this is a very interesting thing when you think about Islam, that there are modern uh, Western-oriented women that don't cover their heads, and there are women who are more traditional and more maybe conservative or Muslim, and they do cover their heads. They do cover their heads. And they're out heads. together. They party together. They're in the streets together. They Definitely. demonstrate together. Definitely. And the beautiful thing about Turkey is you've got that pluralism where people can make their choice. And we don't want to lose it. Now, I noticed in Turkey that there is a creeping fundamentalism, and you see women are expected to wear a scarf who are in certain lines of work and everything, and how is that changing? Do you find there is a rising fundamentalism, uh, religious orthodoxy that is cutting down on women's freedoms and women's opportunities? They try to, some, some try to actually, but still we have a very secular constitution. On the paper, you know, we mm-hmm. are equal. On paper, it's On very paper, modern. Definitely. Had beautiful of course, ideas. we are yeah. equal. And, you know, uh, I was born in a very big city into a very modern, secular, middle-class family. So the opportunities I have are different from a woman who was born, let's say, in the eastern part of Turkey. Right. So my life isn't an example. But there are also many women who are like me. So we are all trying hard to make the lives of those women better. There are many organizations. So we are trying to raise awareness in this issue, and I think the future will be bright for women in Turkey. You know, but Erdogan, we need to Erdogan work harder. Mis- Erdogan miscalculated, I believe, and now people are emboldened. Of course, and of you know, I was a little bit depressed because I saw him 
taking the leadership of the military away so he could control the military and turn Turkey into more of a fundamentalist society. But what you're saying is this got the people in the streets and now the government has learned. Direct democracy, direct action. The Turkish people are going to defend their secularity and their pluralism. Yaren, I was just in Palestine and I was talking to people, young women like you who are very active politically and socially, and uh, they were telling me that they consider Turkey one of the most liberal countries in Islam and, and a country they look to for leadership. Yes, Turkey is a shining example. You know, as a Turkish woman, you know, I have the same freedom as a European woman who lives in France or Germany. And as you said, we owe this to the reforms of Ataturk, you know. But, but do you see Turkey as a leader in, in Islam for women's rights and for secularism? Yes, yes it That's, is. All right. And it, it shows that... Uh, separation of state and religion and Islam can exist together. I'm wondering, as two very secular, pale American women, would my sister and I feel free and safe walking around Istanbul and even further east in Turkey, traveling together as Western women? You're secular and pale? <laughs> I know. Yes. I think pale women are fine in Turkey. I think Istanbul is one of the safest big cities in the world. There's nowhere in the city that I cannot go on my own as a woman, you know. And Turkey is pretty safe. I have been guiding for almost 14 years, and I have guided single women to women on the eastern part of Turkey. You know, it's pretty safe. You know, Jane, we've been bringing groups to Turkey for 20 years, and uh, the interesting thing about Turkey is, uh, it is a multi-ethnic country, and there's a lot of uh, people with very light complexions and a lot of darker people, and everybody mixes together, and you won't even feel that much like you're you're sticking out. You know, you should be sensitive. If you're in a conservative town or a conservative part of Turkey, you would want to dress more conservatively as a woman on the streets, and that's just common sense and, and, and I think, sensible when you're traveling. But stay in uh, well-lit, well-populated areas, and I think you'll be fine. And a lot of people, understandably, they see hysterical news here in the United States that makes it look like all of Turkey's falling apart when really it's just cameras zooming in on the action in one place in Istanbul. Istanbul's a city of how many million 17 people? 17 million, maybe 17 more. 17 million people. And there's a few thousand people on Taksim Square raising their voices. It can look uh, much more crazy than it is. And uh, I think Yaren's experience as a tour guide in Istanbul matches my hunch that uh, you can go there and feel very thankful that you're in Turkey and not at all in any danger as these demonstrations continue. And as a matter of fact, I think there's going to be a lot of demonstrations across the Mediterranean world for the rest of our lifetimes as travelers. And uh, we can't really shy away from that. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call, Jane, and, and happy travels in the future. All right, thanks. We're hearing firsthand what it's been like to become politically active in Turkey from Yaren Turgulu. She's a lifelong Istanbul resident with a master's in classical archaeology, and she guides tours in Turkey for SRM travel. She's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how becoming a political activist is now also part of her identity as a Turkish citizen. Yaren, you mentioned you had a lemon when you're going anticipating the tear gas. Why would you bring a lemon and how would you use it? Because I was informed by my Twitter friends that lemon was really very good for the tear gas, actually, and also milk. So most of the people who live in the Taksim area, especially older people, they put lemons and bottles of milks in front of their houses. So then we were running away, you know, so that we could just grab. Oh, so, the people, the old people in the district where you were demonstrating Taksim I, if you want, left I can, out their lemons. I can also tell you a story. My brother was, of course, he joined the protests too. So he was in Gümüşsuyu. It's very near the Taksim Square, very near the Gezi Park. It's a very upscale neighborhood where there are 19th century beautiful apartments. And he was just running away from the police. You know, the police was just after him. And then suddenly one of the doors of the apartments just opened and a hand appeared and grabbed my brother into the apartment, into the building. And then, of course, there was tear gas inside the building. But suddenly, when my brother started to see again, he saw a very, very old, a little petty woman. And he she saved, grabbed, she saved him from and, the police. And, and she didn't open the door to the police. That's a bold and brave woman. It's amazing. She was with you in spirit. Definitely, definitely. And another interesting thing I will never forget is, uh, during the protests, finally, my phone started to work again. And I called my brother because I was so worried about him. And he was on the other side of the Taksim Square in Harbiye. So I asked him, it was a very interesting telephone conversation. I asked him, is it safe there? 
my brother replied, "No, there is police." <laughs> so it's it's so funny, you know. I, is it safe there? No, there is police. Don't come here. So you know, we are just ordinary citizens, and this is the telephone conversation oh, between us. So it's turning it upside down. It's not safe because there's police. Well, that's going to change. Definitely, you know. So I think that epitomizes the Gezi protests. You know, that's it's, true. It's a good example. And did you ever have tears because of the tear gas? Oh. You know, it's it's horrible. I was tell me what that's like. You can't see, you can't breathe, and maybe these are just physical reactions that you have. But uh, deep inside, you think that it's so unfair. You know, it's so unfair. I think that's the thing that hurts most. Because it's a patriotic thing that you're doing. Indefinitely, and you know, building a shopping mall in the center of a city. You know, in Istanbul, where I live, there are more than in my neighborhood, there are maybe more than twenty-five shopping malls. In Istanbul alone, there are maybe more than 150 shopping malls, and we definitely don't need another one in the middle of the city, you know, in the Gezi Park. Gezi Park is one of the nicest places in the city. We all have our childhood memories there. So, you know, it's like destroying the memory of a city. It's a beloved little green zone. Definitely, and we have only a few nowadays in Istanbul. Yaren, I'm just fascinated by this people's movement, and how did they attract a big crowd? How, how did you first get involved in the demonstrations? Actually, uh, we got organized on Twitter <laughs> and so Facebook. Twitter revolution. Yes, of wow. course. It's a Twitter revolution. And how does that work the, exactly? The main media, the main television channels even didn't cover the demonstrations. So the government could there control a, the TV, but they can't a, control the people. On CNN Turk, actually, during the protests, during the peak of the protests, there was a documentary about penguins. <laughs> During they put penguins <laughs> yes. on, and then the next day we wore penguin masks. <laughs> then we went to the Taksim Square, so maybe we could attract their attention. So you had your penguin masks and your lemons. <laughs> yes, definitely. Pe- the only penguins with lemons. <laughs> and in the I world. have a gas canister in my house, which was you know thrown at me. So you've got I a planted, souvenir. I planted a flower inside. <laughs> what an inspiration! What an inspiration! <laughs> Yaren, uh, when you were to gathered together with all of your um, your your neighbors and fellow citizens, was there a, a slogan or a song you sang, or, or what, what what was the the soundtrack of this demonstration? There are many slogans, but maybe the most important one was, uh, "This is just the beginning. The resistance will continue." <laughs> this is just the beginning. The resistance will continue. Can you say that in Turkish? Bu daha başlangıç mücadeleye devam. And you would say that over and over? Over and over again, you know, thousands of people all together. And did anybody hear you? I think they heard us. I think so too. Yaren Turkoglu? Yes. Best wishes. Good luck to you. Thank you. Or Ishanslar. Good luck. Ishanslar. Yaren Turkoglu, thank you very much for letting us have a front row seat on some of the excitement that's going on in Turkey as you defend your democracy and raise your voice uh, in unison and actually make quite a bit of progress. Thank you so much. Next, we'll take listener calls at 877-333-7425 and check your emails to radio at ricksteves.com. Let's talk about where your travel plans might be taking you and share highlights from your adventures. This is Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of the fun of traveling to someplace new starts in the planning and dreaming stage. That helps you figure out what part of the world you're going to visit next. Let's see what some of our listeners have in mind at 877-333-7425. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Barbara's on the phone from San Clemente, California. Barbara, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, Rick. Where have you been traveling lately, or what have you been thinking about in the way of travel? I've been thinking about Egypt for the second time. Uh-huh. About four years ago, my sister and I traveled to Egypt and sailed down the Nile in the Felucia. Oh, and yeah. I had a trip planned for my husband and my 14-year-old grandson. That would be his first overseas travel. We were scheduled to go in December 3rd, but we unfortunately canceled it because the State Department warned us not to travel to Egypt at this time. So my question is, is it safe to travel now or in the near future? Well, I wish I, I, wish I knew what the near future <laughs> held. I, I can only hope it's going to get safer. I was just there a few months ago, and um, 
I was glad I went. I felt safe, but I spent enough money to be safe. Uh, my take on that is if you are able to stay in an international sort of hotel, they're like forts with uh, security. And if you have a guide who has a driver in a car, you will have your guide meet you with your driver and car at the hotel, and then you'll go out and about and do smart things as a tourist. Now, that seems extravagant, but Egypt is a developing country. It's a less expensive country, obviously, than England or something like that. And I'd say for what a traveler would spend to, to live modestly in London, you could buy an international-class hotel with a, and have a guide with a driver and a car, and you could travel from that international-style hotel as your base, you could travel not recklessly. Would I recommend it? I wouldn't right now. It's just too nervous in Egypt. But I'll tell you, I was all over Egypt, and uh, there was I saw no tourism really in Cairo, but I saw a lot of tourism in Luxor because there's a cruise port nearby, and uh, people will stop in the cruise port, and then they'll bus in for the day in Luxor. And Luxor feels a lot more comfortable than Cairo or Alexandria. But uh, I can hardly wait for it to calm down there. And you said you, you cruised the Nile actually with um, uh, Falouka, is that right? Yes. Now, yes, isn't I did. that? I do that every time I'm in Egypt, and it is just endlessly magical to me. It is very, and we did it at twilight, just as the sun was going down, mm. and we got to see the ancient mariner travel down the Nile using no equipment at all, yeah. just his smarts. Now, this was. <laughs> now, let's explain to our listeners what is a felucca. How would you describe it? A felucca is an ancient Egyptian sailboat, and these mariners have done this kind of sailing without any equipment, down the Nile for many, many centuries. Without any equipment, you mean without, like, electronic um, navigation? Exactly, no navigation or anything, just knowing where those uh, rocks are, where the sunken ships are. Yeah. You know, it's it's a big sailboat, all made out of wood, and when there's no wind, they have these poles, and they pole it up and down the the beautiful shoreline. And where, Barbara, where did you uh, take your ride from? What city? I forgot which city we were in, but yeah, we, we started out in Cairo and, of course, did all the museum trips. Right. And I always go overseas with a guided tour. Yeah, in Egypt, that would make sense for a lot of right. people. I think that you can take a Falouka ride in Cairo, but I would highly recommend doing it in Luxor or Aswan. And I, um, I think we did it in Aswan. And I think it's, you know, it seems kind of expensive. It's like $50 for an hour, but you get a crew of two, you get tea, and you get the magic of being on the Nile in the cool of this uh, magic hour when the sun's going down. And, exactly. and that's something I would I would recommend for anybody. Yeah. Once in their and life, his, you got to be on the Nile at sunset. Yeah, he also had his little youngster on board, and he had made these little trinkets to sell, which I thought was magical as well. It's a, you know, it's an amazing experience to go to Egypt. Let's uh, just hope and pray that they can uh, get some stability in their country and uh, the tourism can come back because it's a, it's the major part of their economy. It should be. Uh, in the past, Absolutely. it's, it's been the number one part of their economy, and I understand now, um, it's, it's almost down to nothing. But you know, there's all these boats that are moored on the, on the riverbank and ready to whip back into gear as soon as things calm down and tourists return to Egypt. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thanks so much, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye now. A listener named Sue in Girdwood, Alaska, writes us with some questions about an upcoming trip she's planning to France. What do you consider the minimum amount of time for a first visit to Paris? I have about three weeks, and I'm thinking seven to ten days in Paris, the rest driving in Provence. What do you think? Well, I would say you could spend more time in Paris, uh, Sue, than anywhere in Europe. But, uh, you know, if you have a week, that's, that's plenty. Three or four days would be fast. If you're thinking seven to ten days in Paris, that's, that's more than enough. Uh, and that leaves you 10 or 12 days for the Provence. What I would do is fly into Paris and then take the bullet train, the uh, TGV, down to Provence and pick up a car there. A rental car in Provence is just great. And then uh, get a guidebook for Provence and the Côte d'Azur, the, the French Riviera, and spend your 10 days tooling around that region with a car. Sue also asks, what's the best time of year to drive around the south of France? I'd love to see the lavender in bloom, uh, but want to avoid the huge summer crowds. Well, if you want to see lavender in bloom, the, the beautiful violet fields in, in uh, Provence, you need to be there basically in July, and that's when there's lots of crowds. It's also very hot, so you need to make that choice. Um, you might want to just enjoy the lavender in the postcards and go in a cooler, less crowded time. I like, you know, May or September. Here's a question from Justin in Pacifica, California. I've heard rave reviews about the Calanques, the steep, walled inlets and bays along the Mediterranean coastline. What can you tell me about them? Can I take a boat tour or a scenic walk to experience them? 
Well, Justin, you're talking about the calanques that are the fjord-like inlets that are famous around the big city of Marseille. The base for exploring the calanques is the town of Cassis. And Cassis is a beautiful town in its own right, and it's a good jumping-off point for taking either boat tours or hiking tours of those fjord-like inlets that are characteristic there around Marseille on the south of France. We're checking on listener travel plans and trip reports right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com, and you can also post your travel reports and tips online. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. And Bill's on the phone in Sharpsburg, Georgia. Hi, Bill. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. I, um, my wife and I have just recently re- retired, and um, we've pretty much traveled all over the world. And um, we love Italy. We've been there four times. We love it, and we're thinking about living there for a year. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'd like the recommendations is what area would you recommend? I love all of it. Mm-hmm. And also, would you recommend living in a city or out in the country? We'd like to just rent a place and live like a, an Italian for a year. Boy, that sounds so exciting. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have done just that. We've talked to them over the years on our on our radio show here, and you can always uh, look into the archives of our show uh, at the radio corner at ricksteves.com and listen to some of the discussions we've had with people who have bought fixer-uppers in different parts of Italy, and you can hear their, you know, the ups and downs of uh, chasing their dreams that way. Of course, under the Tuscan sun, you know, is a big uh, thing, and everybody's dreaming about, um, you know, having that magical experience in Tuscany. But there's a lot more to Italy than Tuscany. Tuscany is the most popular destination for a lot of romantics uh, wanting to go to Italy and get back to basics. You know, if I had a year in Italy, I think I would think of the diversity in Italy, and I think I would break it up. That might be defeating the purpose of what you want to do is just settle down and get to know the community. But I find that when you go to a restaurant or a cafe in Italy for your second or third time, all of a sudden, you're part of the family, you're part of the gang, and, and you, you can become a, a local pretty quickly when you travel around Italy if you're embracing the local culture. And I would consider trying the experience in the big city, try the experience in the south, try the experience in the north, try the experience in the hill towns, try the experience on the Riviera. Uh, you've got lots of different options that way. And yeah. um, you might want to spend a month going around and just uh, scouting. Economic times are, are, are kind of tough, and there's all sorts of apartments that are not very expensive at all that are ready to rent tomorrow. And if you uh, found a place you liked, you could book them and you could go find another place and you could cobble together, you know, four stops over a year after one year, one month of scouting. That's what I would do. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that because mm-hmm. uh, we've been to most of the places in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. but And we, we only go to one place. When we go over okay. any country, we stay at one city and we get to know it. Well, and, here's uh, we don't try and say I've been to five countries in right. five days. Oh, know? that's the luxurious way to go. Here's what I'd say right off the top of my head. Milano. Milano is no nonsense. Today's Italy. They say for every church in Rome, there's a bank in Milan. Uh, Italy has recently surpassed England in per capita income, and it's not because of San Gimignano and Venice. It's because of no-nonsense big cities like Milano. And Milano has an elegance that's just really great, and you can side-trip from there up to the beautiful lakes all around uh, the place where Italy is kind of welded to the Alps, just below Switzerland. So I'd, I'd consider Milano for your big city. I would consider Volterra as your best hill town, Volterra in Tuscany. It's uh, sort of off the beaten path, and it is everything you want in a hill town with a, with a wonderful... Uh, selection of restaurants. I find very friendly locals, beautiful history, and a history that goes all the way back to Etruscan times. Siena is just a magical place. It's quite touristy, but if you went there off-season, if you moved in, you could uh, find yourself really um, connecting with Siena. And then south of uh, Rome, Sorrento is a beautiful lemoncello kind of city where you've got a springboard to lots of beautiful things to see and do in and around the Bay of Naples and the Amalfi Coast and also out to the islands nearby. So Sorrento would be a place to consider. If you wanted Italy in the very intense kind of way, you could check out a city. You could stay in Palermo. You could stay in Syracuse and Sicily, or you could stay in Naples. But, you know, there's there's really no right answer. There's so many great places to stay. Yeah, Ravenna is a beautiful place if you have a bicycle and you just want to get a, an elegant town that is not overrun by tourists. Ravenna has its famous churches, but most tourists just zip in and out to see the churches. And uh, I find that Ravenna has a, a charming kind of stay-a-while sort of ambience to it. It's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard choice. I, I like your idea about maybe just going to two months here and two months there or something All right. like that. You know, well, Bill, I, I think it's a problem that a lot of people wish they had. How are you going to spend in Italy, a year in Italy? Let us know when you get done, okay? 
Okay, very much. I'm Thanks so thank much. Thank you for all, all your advice through the years. I've been you following bet. you for a long time. Thanks, Bill, and yeah. good luck with your uh, adventure. I, I know it's going to be great. I'm going to start packing right now. Okay, okay. bye-bye. Bye-bye. Saul in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes, I'm planning a two-week trip to Italy. We're trying to maximize the places we visit while minimizing the number of times we have to change hotels. Is it worth using two or three cities as a home base, or should we just deal with moving every two or three days? You know, Saul, a lot of people like to make a home base. You can make a home base in Rome inside trip out, a home base in Florence inside trip out, a home base in Siena, a home base in Milano, or whatever. But I would rather relocate because I really like spending the evenings in the small towns. And when you side trip out from the big cities, you won't have the joy of being in small towns after dark. Uh, A lot of these small towns in Italy are inundated with tourist crowds during the middle of the day. But at night, they retreat to the predictable plumbing of their big city hotels. And the local people have made their money and then they become more relaxed. Uh, A tourist trap like San Gimignano or Orvieto may feel really touristy in the middle of the day. But if you enjoy the evening there, you'll have fine restaurants with uh, much cheaper prices than the big cities, and you'll have hotels that are more affordable than the big cities, and you'll enjoy the romance of these towns without all the heat and the intensity and the crowds of midday. Stuart in Spartanburg, South Carolina asks, How's driving around Italy if you have yet to drive in Europe? Sounds like Rome itself is daunting, but I'd like to get the local flavor outside of Rome. Well, Stuart, driving in Italy is on the freeways, a lot like driving in France or Germany. Uh, the difference between Germany and Italy is you have toll booths every half an hour or something you have to stop and pay for, but the freeways in Italy are just really great. You would not want to drive in big cities in Italy. Driving in Naples or driving in Rome or, or Florence is, is nerve-wracking. Uh, it's expensive because you probably can't read the, the signs that say in clear Italian, if you pass this point, you'll get a big, steep ticket if you're not a local resident uh, with your car. So, you know, you either can't drive in the cities or driving in the cities is crazy. A rental car in Rome is just a big, expensive headache. The point is, do big cities first and then pick up your car when you're ready to tool around in the countryside. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Alice is on the line in Carlsbad, California. Alice, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Okay, well, I want to tell you about some of the most memorable moments I've had and my husband and I also love Italy, and that's where we've been mostly, uh-huh. uh, is uh, asking people for directions. And you talk about people to people. This is a really good way to connect with them. And I had one memorable moment in Trapani. My husband and I knew we were right near where we're, or the B&B was, but we couldn't find it. So I just said, stop the car. I'm going to go find someone. And it was right by a square. I went up and found this elderly lady. And she spent about 45 minutes with me. We went mm. and talked to all her friends and asked where it was. And mm. we went to the tourist office. I mean, we went everywhere. Finally, we found out where it was. She marched me up to the door and <laughs> said, here you go. And it was really a memorable experience. Now, Alice, explain to our listeners, where is Trapani? It's in Sicily. Mm-hmm. Uh, down. It's not far from um, Palermo. It's Beer way in the, on the west end of Sicily, right? Yes. We were there for Easter, and it was fabulous. They have this most fabulous procession that they have every year, and it's one of the biggest they have in all of Europe. Now, tell us about that. Were you there on the curb watching the Passion go by, or what what was it? It was, they started a church, and they they spend the night in there decorating. You can go in the night before and watch them decorating with the most beautiful flowers, roses and orchids and, oh, peonies, beautiful flowers. Mm. And then the next day, they start this procession, and... Each, uh, you would might call it a float, I don't know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a scene of, uh, of the cross, mm-hmm. and each one comes out with all these guys in black suits carrying it on their shoulders, they're very heavy, and they each have a band that goes with them that plays this, mm. this wonderful music. And now, then, Al- Alice, excuse me, these would be statues that sit in the niche in their church all year long and they get sort of set well, out each, free in the, each, in the Easter time? Each one is decorated by a certain group of people like the bakers, the Mm. tailors, the fishermen. You know, Mm. each one has their own statue that they do each year. Wow. It's absolutely fabulous. And they parade all through town all night and all day. And the next morning they come back and into the church again. Now, you were in a town where there was, I don't think there's a lot of tourism in, in Trapani. No, there? no, there isn't. So you got a, a nice look at Italy, and in fact, Sicily, which I consider Italy in the extreme, oh. without, without the tourists, and you were there on Easter. What a great, great uh, opportunity. It was 
beautiful. You know, springtime is a beautiful time to be in Italy, that's for sure. How did you find Sicily, just in general? Sicily has a reputation of being, you know, with uh, organized crime and uh, a lot of intensity. Uh, what did, how, how were you welcomed by well, the people? I tell you, it took us several visits to Italy before I finally uh, got up the nerve, I think. Mm-hmm. I thought I was a little worried, but I said, we're going to go. Mm-hmm. And it was fabulous. <laughs> people were friendly. Well, there was never a problem. I loved it. <laughs> I think that is so interesting how so many people hear so many stories that get so extreme when they just uh, travel over the ocean or whatever, and and it, the result is they never avail themselves to some of the most beautiful travel opportunities on the planet. I mean, going to Sicily is just great, but a lot of people would think you're quite courageous to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, they've said that about other things I do. <laughs> I like your philosophy of just asking questions. All over Europe, I've found that, even if I know the answer, I like to ask the question just to see the twinkle in someone's eye and yeah, hear their and voice. Yeah, and it helps to know a little bit of the language, yeah. you know, just enough to get by. Anybody can do that. All right. Yeah. Hey, well, thanks so much for your call, and happy travels in the future. Thank you. Bye. I know. Barbara in Bountiful, Utah, emails us about the logistics for a trip to Turkey that she's thinking about. Barbara writes, I'm planning to visit Istanbul soon. It's been my hope for several years to also visit Ephesus. How easy is it to get from one to the other? Well, of course, Istanbul is the great city, along with London, Paris, and Rome. I think Istanbul deserves more time than any other European city. You'll want to fly into Istanbul, Barbara, spend four or five days there at a minimum, and then most people would fly to Izmir, And from Izmir, you can catch a bus uh, to Ephesus. You can also fly to an airport near Kusadashi and from there catch a bus to Ephesus. Uh, When you get to Izmir or Kusadashi, you could go there on an overnight bus, but I would just fly. People fly in Turkey now routinely. Flights, Domestic flights in Turkey are quite cheap and, and easy to book. You'll get around easily in the region of Ephesus by public transportation. Ephesus, by the way, is my favorite ancient site in the west of Turkey. And remember, you know, 2,000 years ago, the west coast of Turkey was called Iona. It was a part of the, the Greek world. And you'll find a lot of wonderful Greek and Roman ruins in what we think of as Turkey today, but back in ancient times, was actually part of Greek culture. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner. Our website team includes Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, and we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.